Well, we're shifting gears, but not really. We've come out of the book of Ezra. We've considered Esther right in the middle of it, doing a historical sweep. We'll talk a little bit more about the setting of that in just a moment. Uh, And now we come to Nehemiah chapter 1. So if you would turn there, please. And we're going to stand and read the entire chapter together because it's just, I I didn't know what to take out and put in. It's just so beautiful. Now, you realize that we we don't really need to give a big introduction to this book because in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. This is just the next chapter. And so that's one of the reasons we move directly into chapter 1 without a, uh, a big introduction of the book. So we're going to read from it. Uh, hopefully this will stir some thoughts in you, and uh, then we'll try to walk through this and apply it to our lives. So please stand, if you would, in honor of the reading of the Word of God, and uh, we'll read this. You read along silently as I read aloud. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Cheslev in the 20th year, the 20th year of the reign. We don't find this out until the next chapter, the reign of a king by the name of Artaxerxes. He says, I was in Susa, the capital, the capital of Persia. And Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. That's a long way away. That's 800 miles away. And I asked them, concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. Those who were back in Jerusalem who had left with Zerubbabel and then later uh, another group with Ezra. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. We're going to find out how long he actually did that. And I continued, he also added to his weeping and mourning, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive to, and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, again he prays, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's speaking of the king. And then he ends with now. 
I was cupbearer to the king. Father, it is our prayer that as we, uh, as we walk through this first chapter of the book of Nehemiah, that you would lead us through this study. We don't want to hear just words of any man and, and even to view this as just only as history, which it was, but also to, to get a sense of what you're doing in the lives of your people, not only then, but even today. So we thank you and we praise you and we pray for uh, open eyes spiritually and open hearts. We pray for alertness and that you would apply, give us repentance and faith and help us, like Nehemiah, uh, to discover the riches of the greatness of the grace of Almighty God. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's get right to it. Open your, uh, not only your Bibles, but your outline. I've got a lot of scripture, as usual, to, to share that hopefully will be a, a support for some of the things that we're talking about. Let's go back and just ask a question. Why study the book of Nehemiah? Not something that you hear preached every day in, in the church, but the, really the broader question is this. Why study any book of the Bible? Why are you here today? That could be a loaded question. You might be here for a number of reasons, and there could be, in fact, a variety of responses. But ultimately, ultimately, for the vast majority of, of us here today, we are here because we are hoping to get from this service today, something that we can't get anyplace else. You can go to any number of service organizations or, or self-help kinds of meetings and all of the rest of that, but here today you are going to be hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the picture of uh, Nehemiah. And that's why we are here. That's why we study the book of Nehemiah. You see, let's go back and, and look at this. One of the things that we firmly believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and that it is profitable, it is good for us to study every passage of Scripture. Jesus himself, uh, through the Apostle Paul, said this, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's clear. It's sufficient. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, that tells us when we get off track, for correction, how to get back on track, and for training in righteousness. Here's why. So that the man of God, now I know this could be referring to Paul and to leaders, but let's just apply it to all of us, the man, the woman of God. Here's why, the Word of God and why we study it. So that you can be competent, equipped for every good work. Second Peter chapter 1 says this, His divine power, this is another reason why we study God's Word, His divine power, we believe, grants to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now watch this part of it, by which he is granted, or his own glory and excellence by which he is granted to us his precious and very great promises. Where do we find 
his promises in the Word of God. In the book of Nehemiah, in the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah, absolutely true. Some of you may be new to heritage. You may not know our motto, our byline, but those of you who have been here for a long time, I'm looking at you. I could, I could ask any one of you who has been here for a, a number of years what it is, and you would stand to your feet and you'd be able to say it. And I see all kinds of heads going like this. <laughs> Just like you used to do in algebra. Don't call on me. Don't call on me. Here's why we exist. Here's why any church should exist. We want to develop people, God's people. We want to reach out. We want to develop people who delight in God and declare His glory from our neighborhoods to the nations. And the Word of God gives us the means to do that. Now, let's go back and look at the historical context. I did that in my comments earlier in the annual meeting. Uh, Short history just of of heritage and how we came into being, all the rest of that and why that's important. But here's the historical context, and I find this absolutely fascinating. One of the things I like to do, and it it doesn't always get to you, because I just don't have time, I don't have room in my sermon, but one of the things I like to do is to do a timeline of this particular passage of Scripture, and then to look up, to Google of what was going on in the world at that same time. It's it's really interesting. So let me share a little bit about what was going on, the historical context uh, of this passage of Scripture, Nehemiah. All right, to get an idea, it was about 80 years. A lot of us don't have that time frame. 80 years after Zerubbabel. Do you remember him? The first chapter of Ezra and how God stirred the the heart of the king to send him back. So Zerubbabel led the first group after 70 years in captivity in Babylon, led the first group back to Jerusalem to rebuild the altar and rebuild the temple. And this is 80 years later. One of the things that was going on in the world, we we tend to isolate it and think that this is the only part of history. You ever heard of a a guy named Gautama Buddha? Well, if you haven't heard of him, have you ever heard of Buddhism? Did you know that Buddhism came into, into being? It was born as one of the major world religions during that time? Kind of interesting. Here's God doing a work, and here are all these religions spinning off in other parts of the world. So it was during the reign under Cyrus, who was then the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, and it was about 28 years after Esther. You remember Esther? Who was she married to? A guy by the name of Xerxes. So this is about 28 years later after after the time of Esther, and the son of Xerxes was Artaxerxes that shows up in Nehemiah. Now, in case I hesitate to throw out the name of a movie, I may not recommend all of the movies that I share 
but I'm, I'm sure this is going to ring a bell, a bell with you. Do you remember King Xerxes was, he, he ultimately was successful, but he fought against 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. Do you remember that historical story? There's a movie about it several years ago. Again, I do not recommend it, but it gives a context. So, you know, some of the things in the movie, like everything Hollywood does, they based on a true story. Well, they use a true story and then they take off. But the Persian army did have a group of people called the Immortals. They were select fighters. And so Xerxes was a great warrior. He ultimately won. They defeated that group of 300, but then he was later assassinated. Now, I've looked for it. I can't find out exactly how he was assassinated, but he was assassinated by one of the people closest to him, a commander of his armies. So we fast forward. This is the time of Artaxerxes. He has taken over. We find that in chapter 2, verse 1. Still got your Bible open? Look over there. There's Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes. Nehemiah was sent from Susa, the capital of Persia, to Jerusalem in around, you might want to write this down, 444 B.C. You're thinking, I don't want to write that down. But just remember that to rebuild the walls. He served as governor. We'll find that out later for 12 years. And interestingly enough, it was about that time, 432 B.C.-ish. That's why these numbers are important. The great plague of Athens broke out. Historians really don't know what it was. They think it was either typhus or an Ebola-like virus that wiped out anywhere between one-third and two-thirds of the population of Athens. Isn't that interesting? I say all of that because there are times when we think we are the only ones going through certain things that are happening in the world. And so here are the people of God. I, I, it started in Africa and it worked its way up, I would imagine it doesn't have any record, I looked for it, in the Bible that they were impacted by that. But certainly they knew it was going on. And yet, they also knew everything was proceeding according to plan. Let's look at the main characters of this story, all right? Who are they? Who would you think is first? Well, you would think Nehemiah, okay? Uh, let's throw in the people of God. Aren't they a big part of the, the story? Well, if you're going to put the people of God, how about the enemies of God? How about Artaxerxes? How about Ezra, who shows up later in the book? They were all main characters of this story. And if you said any one of those, you would be correct from a purely human perspective. But you would be incorrect from the perspective that really counts. And we find who the main character is of the story if we'll look down at verse 5 
at, at the beginning of, of, Ezra, of Nehemiah's prayer where he starts out with the main character of the story. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with whom? With all of the Persians out there, he was not trying to reform the Persian culture. He was bringing the word to the people of God. And so he lists it and he says, to those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, I've said this before, but we just need to realize it again. The Bible is not first about us. The Bible is always first about God. And, And there's something else that we need to remember out of this. That every passage of Scripture speaks of Jesus. Even this passage of Scripture we're going to see in just a minute. I've I've shared these two verses with you over and over again, but they are so incredibly important to us as we study the Word of God. Jesus spoke to a group of religious people, and He said, You search, now this could be a command, search the Scriptures. It could be also a statement. You search the Scriptures because... You think that you're going to find eternal life in the Scriptures. But understand something. It is the Scriptures, all of them, including Nehemiah chapter 1, that bear witness about me. And then, later on, he's speaking to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and and he's opening the Word to them. And here's what it says. Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in, watch this, all, all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The Bible really is all about Jesus Christ. Let's go to the third part of this story. And you see the title there on your outline. The third part says, and here's the way I've, uh, uh, that I've titled it, How Do God's People Get Themselves Into Such Messes? Do you think I'm trying to be contemporary with that? I absolutely am trying to be contemporary with that. God's people, it says, we read it just a few moments ago, were in great trouble and shame. Now, folks, this was years after the devastating, you talk about contemporary, the devastating Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. People, Nebuchadnezzar was awful. How do I say it? He was Putin on steroids. And when he went into Jerusalem and killed and they did what people normally do. I don't know how much we're hearing accurately what is going on, but in most of the wars that have ever been fought where there's been an invasion and a takeover, there is, there is killing. I'm talking about murder from the youngest up. There is plunder. They take whatever they want and they rape. You think as God's people, God, why, 
why would you let them go through this? Jan and I were talking about this very thing, watching the news yesterday, and she said, I wonder if your statement makes any sense to them. I said, what statement? That everything is going according to plan. You've you got to remember the context. Go back to Esther when, when I preached that. They were looking at genocide, and yet God, because of he, the fact that he is sovereign over everything, which means he's sovereign over every situation that you and I are going through in this room, that everything really was going according to plan. But here's what had happened. This is, not, this is 70 years of captivity plus 80 years after Zerubbabel has returned, and so the problem is that the gates and the walls are still broken down, destroyed by fire. So how do God's people get themselves into messes like that? Now, I'm going to apply this in just a minute, and I'm going to ask you to think of ways that your gates... What is a gate? A gate is, is what opens and closes so that something can come in or out. Walls. Walls are there for protection. And I'm going to ask you to think spiritually of that, and I want you to ask yourself, how have my walls been broken down? How have my gates been burned with fire? But here's how God's people get themselves into messes like this. We've read this verse before, but let's read it again. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messenger. Maybe his messengers weren't filled with compassion, but God was. He had compassion on his people, on his dwelling place. What did they do? They kept mocking the messenger of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against the people and there was no remedy. Now, I, I know that I'm talking... To, and this is a parallel. You, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and we're going to define that just a little bit more in, 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 a, in a few moments, you need to know that God will not forget His covenant people. You need to know that if you're in His hands, you can never get out. But you need also to know that even today, God sends His Word we don't have the prophets of old. We have His Word that comes to you by preachers, by teachers, by Awana leaders, by your parents, by your grandparents. And that Word that comes to you sometimes as a rebuke of what you are doing and how you are living, and I include myself in that, unless you've reached perfection. And you may be sitting there and you may say, well, I'm a pretty good guy and uh, I don't mock the messengers of God, but every time you hear the Word of God, daily devotional, Bible reading, the, the, a sermon, uh, ABF, Sunday school, whatever it might be, and you reject it and you continue to reject the things of God, what are you doing? 
you're mocking him. Now, you won't lose your salvation, but you could very get, well get yourself into captivity. That's how God's people get themselves into such messes. I, 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 I'm trying to make this pointed. I've, I've been dealing with this all week with, with moi, with me. I try to check out how the enemy ha- has been able to access my life. Asking questions, Lord, are, are, are the walls that you have given me for protection, have I allowed them to be broken down? Have I broken them down? Inside and outside, um, and, and again, I know I'm, I look out there, I, I don't know all of your lives personally, I know very intimately this young lady who is sitting here, and so I, I know that we all deal with these kinds of things every day, but the Word of God needs to confront some people in this room today. And only the Holy Spirit can take His Word and make it specific, how your walls have been broken down. But let me give you a couple of scriptures that might help, okay? Here are a couple, about four. Psalm 141, verse 3. Here's the prayer of the psalmist. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Maybe it's your speech. Maybe it's something that has escaped your mouth this last week. It could be when you're driving down the street and and somebody does... I've shared this over and over again. I guess it's one of my pet sins, you know. Somebody pulls out or, you know, I I don't. It could be any number of things. And out of my mouth comes a word. What an idiot. Now, again, I ask this rhetorically because I know the answer. Am Am I the only one? Well, that's sin. Jesus said it's sin. Don't call your, don't call someone an idiot. I mean, wow, you're getting close to the fires of hell with that. So at least what you ought to do is set a guard over your mouth so you won't say it, or set a guard, we'll see this in a minute, over your heart so that you'll repent when you do. But I'm talking about a lot of other things. There are relationships between husbands and wives. The things that come out of their mouths toward each other, the things that come out of your mouths about your siblings, even grown siblings, I'm not necessarily trying to meddle, but if our, if, if our church exists for the purpose of developing people who delight in God and declare His glory, James said that a fountain can't produce good water and bad water. So don't let those unwholesome words, Paul says in Ephesians, come out of your mouth, but only such a good word that is good for edification, that it brings blessing to the hearer. That's one way that you, maybe, maybe you're going about your business and you believe you're a Christian, and maybe you are, uh, but, but maybe your walls have been broken down in that way. Maybe here's another way. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're, they're divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. 
So watch this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. There are a lot of lofty opinions that are out there in the world that are making their way into the, the minds of people in the church. And so what do you do? What do you do when one of those lofty opinions out there comes that's opposed to the Word of God? You take it captive to the obedience of Christ. What has Jesus said about that? What do the apostles say about that? What, what have the prophets of old said about that? And you take it obe- to the obedience, you compare it to, to what the, the Word of God says, and then you reject it if it's not according to the Word of God. Here's another one. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart. Oh, okay, so we've, we've, got, we've got the mouth, we've got the mind, now let's go to the heart. Watch over the, the affections. Watch over your affections with all vigilance, for from it the heart, the seat of affections, flows the spring, springs of life. Now, I, I, I am always surprised... Well, no, not, not always surprised, but it's interesting that when I preach a sermon and people will come up afterwards and say, what you said here, and they'll say what I said, really convicted me about this, and the interesting thing is I have no recollection of having said that. I wasn't even referring to that particular sin area But because there are people who are sensitive to what God is doing in their life, and when the Word of God is out there and the Holy Spirit applies it, and you are trying to watch over your heart with all vigilance, then you're going to realize that that unholy affection that I never even said anything about is a sin against God. And you reject it. Wow, we could just go on and on all day. We're not going to. Let's mention one more. A man without self-control is like a city broken into, I find this interesting, and left without walls. So I asked. It was kind of rhetorical. I expected an answer, uh, but it was really a question, and we've gone through this number of things just, just from the Bible, the Word of God. It's not a preacher trying to get on to you. It's just the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit speaking to, I hope, every person in this room. And this, this one really gets me. I mean, I, you know, areas that are not necessarily sinful. A man without self-control. You know what the first thing I thought of for myself? Food. I, I just, I, here, I'm going to suck in my stomach, okay. I love food. I, I love food that's not always the healthiest food. And so I was convicted of this, a man without self-control. Well, Marty, if you're going to get that cheeseburger at the garage, leave off the bacon, at least. Self-control. A man with... This self-control could be in every... In the mind, in the heart, every area... But that person, if you're a person and you lack self-control, and this is, this is a person I, I think that is largely given himself or herself over to whatever it is where you are not exercising self-control, but he says it very interesting. You're like a city broken into and left without walls. You're like the people of God that forfeited Jerusalem 
and their walls were torn down, and their gates were on fire. Could, could I ask a question, and this is, again, just a, a question where it's not, it's not rhetorical. I don't know the answer to this in your life. Is holiness still a goal for you? Was holiness ever a goal for you? And if it was once, is it still your goal? Or do you daily just give in to sins? And now you find those sins difficult to even resist? Here's a good, here's a good way to find out. Ask your spouse or ask your kids. And be ready. Now, maybe they'll say, no, you're, I see you as pursuing holiness. But, but ask the people closest to you. And that's why so many times behavioral problems all around us, that's, that's, we can easily switch that. Well, it's upbringing or it's environment or it's whatever rather than seeing it as a sin and repentance kind of things. Don't, here, please don't do this. Don't compare yourself with other Christians. Well, I'm better than that other guy. I've heard stories. Listen, I've heard stories of a lot of preachers that have blown it. But you don't compare yourself. You compare yourself with the one who is holy and you're pursuing his holiness. And that's why in the first hour I said, look, if, if we're going to view this book as a how-to guide, as a, a book of just principles, Jesus a lot of times can be left out of the whole equation. But if this book is God's Word that reveals Jesus on every page, then we are going to pursue, because of what this book says, the holiness of God through Jesus Christ. Psalm 18, too. Uh, th this, this is where you need to run. And by the way, this, this is where Nehemiah ran to. Psalm 18, too. And if you're, if, if you're in that situation, Christian, where your walls are broken down, you've been yielding, giving in, your walls are broken down, run to Jesus. I mean, that sounds so trite, but it is so true. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Let's move on to the next to the last thing. What is the proper heart response to the shameful state of God's people? Uh, look at what uh, Nehemiah did in verse 4. As I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and I mourned for days. I continued in fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That's intense. Now, just a little thing, and this is why study of God's Word, it's it, it just, if, if you would do a simple ch uh, uh, search as you're studying in your devotional time, and you'll look at, wh when did this happen according to verse 1? Please, somebody, when did it happen? In the month of Chislev. It's on the Hebrew calendar. So what do you do? You Google... Jewish months. And then you find out how long did, did Nehemiah pray and weep and fast 
Look at chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, that's not the car. And if you look it up on a Jewish calendar, don't do it right now, do it when you get home, or blue letter Bible, or something like that, you're going to find out that Nehemiah was in the state mentioned in verse 4 for four months. And for a good part of my Christian life, even as a leader, I could barely drag myself out of bed to pray for 15 minutes. That's just shocking. And, and I looked at that and I said, Lord, even though I get up early and even though I have a quiet time and even though I pray and I've got my prayer list and all that, do I, do I manifest this kind of heart for prayer? Do I give this, this kind of a heart response? Do you? Okay, stop right there. What's your answer? Yes or no? Do you, do you do this? Probably not. So let me encourage you to begin to make a transition in what we're talking about, okay? Is this a, listen, is this a model or example for prayer? Yes. Should we take prayer seriously? Yes. Am I trying to guilt you into coming tonight to prayer meeting? No. I said last week I was, and we had a good number. Uh, we had a men's night last Sunday night. Wasn't that Sunday night? I wasn't able to come. What was the title of that? What, what, was, what was the, uh, Jim, what was the title of that? Had something to do with bacon. A hundred guys turned out for Bacon. So I was talking to one of the men this morning, and he said, hey, maybe if you cooked bacon tonight for the prayer meeting, maybe they would come. And frankly, if our hearts were like Nehemiah, we wouldn't need bacon. We, we would see what's happening in the church of Jesus Christ around the world, and maybe in our country, and I, I feel sometimes like it's, things are closing in. I really do. Now, we have to be very careful of that as if we're the only ones doing the right thing or whatever. I, don't, I shared the first hour. I don't ever want to get into that. But at the same time, when you look at what's happening in the church, the Lutheran church that Martin Luther started, Episcopalian churches, Drag queen story hour for the children on Sunday morning? And we, we pass over that. We, we, don't, we don't get upset. Nehemiah was so upset over the condition of his people because the gates were burned up and the walls were broken down. And, and I asked myself this week as I studied it, God, I, please... Give me more of that heart. And I think that would be a, a really wonderful thing for all of us to pray. But at the same time, I asked a question a minute ago. I got a no. Okay? You know what this is really about? This is about an unattainable kind of thing. It, and I want to make a, a, a transition into a, a reality. 
that we need to say. So I'm going to skip this verse, and then I'm going to, uh, well, I'm going to go back to that verse. And I'm going to tell you what the first chapter of Nehemiah really is about. It's really about Jesus. And we look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. We don't look to our own works and trying to perform enough to get God to like us. Now, do we want to grow in these kinds of areas? The, the, the answer is absolutely yes. But we need to see, first of all, that, that Jesus is the one pictured in the first chapter of Nehemiah. Because Jesus did something that we don't do. When he drew near, near the city, near and saw the city, he wept. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his righteousness. Ultimately, Nehemiah is one of the most beautiful pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ that is in all of Scripture. Let me go to that. And before we take the Lord's Supper, I want to give you three reasons why He is that, okay? You may want to just jot this down, or at least the verses. The first one is, and we're going to see this in the life of Nehemiah, Nehemiah basically left his high-ranking position as cupbearer to serve his people by rebuilding the wall. Jesus gave up his position in glory to come to earth as a man and to die for us. That's what Philippians chapter 3, verses 6 through 8 says. He was in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God something to be hung on to, but he gave it up to come to earth and be a man and to die on Calvary's cross. Nehemiah also built the wall of salvation, but Jesus is our wall of salvation. If you're not in Christ today, then you will perish. But if you're in Christ, here's what he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Jesus will rebuild the gates. I give to them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus ultimately is our wall of salvation. And as we come to take the Lord's Supper, I want you to see this. At the very end of this chapter, we find that little phrase. What does it say? Now, I was cupbearer to the king. We're going to talk about this more next week, but the cupbearer to the king was probably the, the highest ranking position to surround the king. Of all the king's officials, you know why? It's not just that he was getting the wine and letting him drink the wine. Because assassination was such a constant threat, the cupbearer, by the way, the king got a Jew to be the cupbearer. They're expendable. But the cupbearer would taste the king's wine. He would eat the king's food. The king would wait and see if he was going to fall over dead. The cupbearer 
was willing to take a bullet for the king. Now turn that around. Jesus was the ultimate cupbearer. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus took the cup of poison. And it really was suffering and death for you and me. And he drank it down and took upon himself on the cross the sins of the world. And when we come to celebrate communion, that is what we are celebrating. That we no longer have to bear the pain and the shame because Jesus has taken the cup for us. I want you to bow your heads as we get ready to transition into a time of taking the Lord's Supper. just want to talk to you for a second about that. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, not any amount of talking or praying or whatever that I can do can cajole you into becoming a believer. Only God can grant repentance and faith, and that's what you must have to be in Christ. So if you're here today, you know you're not a Christian, you know you do not have Jesus, then ask Him. Remember, He's full of compassion. Ask Him, would you, to grant you repentance, that ability to turn away from sin, and grant you faith, that ability to believe that Jesus really is the only way to the Father. And if, if you do that in these moments, then God has already granted that. And then you can take this communion, you can take this Lord's Supper with the full knowledge that you're demonstrating what Jesus did, just did in your life. But if you've been a believer for a certain amount of time, it should be just as fresh as the first day you said, I believe in Jesus. And as we take these elements... We will remember the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.